Great. If you have a Bible with you, why don't you turn to uh, Romans chapter 12, which is where we're going to be today. And it's where we've been for a little while, isn't it? How lovely is Romans chapter 12? Such a change of pace from Romans 1 through 11, and yet um, uh, absolutely connected to the message of Romans 1 to 11. What we have today, like we had last week and we'll have next week, is uh, really, really practical stuff to do with the life of faith. Um, If you haven't noticed already, Romans chapter 12 is a very loose collection of commands that really the only thing that they have in common with one another is that they all flow out of um, the the context of Romans 1 through 11. So let's remind ourselves of that context once more. Um, A good, a good, the the turning point of Romans 12, 1, where we were told in view of God's mercies to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. In view of God's mercies, offer yourselves as living sacrifices. In other words, on the basis of grace, um, because God is merciful, by the power of the indwelling spirit who we have received, we who have received mercy now live differently than how we did before we had received mercy. The gospel of grace is a transforming power that changes us and changes all of life. Here... Our passage for today illuminates illuminates for us some very specific ways that Jesus is going to bring transformation into your life. Our passage today is verses 11 and 12, which say this. Do not be slothful in zeal. Thank you so much, Jamie. Um, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. What we have here are six commands in in two verses. Three commands in verse 11 revolving around what it means for us to actively serve the Lord in the life of faith. Uh, And three commands in verse 12 which revolve around what it means to persevere in that active faith as we follow the Lord. I'm sure you can see that those themes are somewhat connected and yet also um, significantly different in their emphasis. And so what we're going to do today, we're going to break this down into two parts and look at them one at a time. Uh, we're up to what I call the shotgun of application, right? This is, this is a common feature in a lot of Paul's letters where he will, he will build the case for salvation by grace for us. He'll, he'll increase our understanding of the gospel in the front end of his letter And then when it comes time to apply it, how do we live out the good news of the gospel? It's like a a shotgun loaded with buckshot where it's just scattering everywhere. Uh, And we're left with him saying lots of things in a short space of time uh, and having to make sense of them in a sermon. Uh, And so because these things are somewhat loosely connected, I find personally um, that what helps me make use of a sermon like the one we're going to hear today is to keep my antenna up looking for Of these six commands, perhaps there is one of them which speaks most loudly to you as being um, most helpful or most urgent in the week ahead. Uh, Your job today then, your challenge is to um, keep your antennas up during during the sermon today, looking for how the Lord might encourage you, with the plan being that at the end of our service today, during morning tea, before you leave, grab a friend, grab someone from the church who you know, Um, Grab me if you don't know anybody else or or, or the person sitting next to you, they don't bite. Sometimes Jesse bites, but it's (laughs) 
it's mostly done. Um, grab someone before you go and speak with them and say, which of the commands do you think the Lord had for you most loudly today? Share with them how the Lord was speaking to you today. And then pray for each other and do that before you go. I think that's, that's, that's the best way to make use of a sermon like this. So here we go. Our first implication of grace is that we are called to serve the Lord. To serve the Lord. To be active in the life of faith in doing ministry. Let's take a verse, uh, take a gander at verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Three commands. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. This uh, first instruction here, do not be slothful in zeal, is the only of the six things that we will look at today, which is worded as a negative. And it serves as a good place for us to begin. It turns out that there is, well, there's a number of them, but there's a specific mistake that we can make in the life of faith um, that Jesus wants us to avoid. And here's what it is. Sometimes we can make the mistake of believing that because we are saved by grace alone, because we contribute nothing of works to our salvation, that this means that once we accept salvation from God, that's it, we're good. God will require nothing more from us for the rest of our lives. Sometimes we come to view grace as an excuse to be lazy and inactive in the life of faith. We, we become a mere passive recipient and nothing more. Um, to, the, to the mere cultural Christian who wants a notion of security from God, but also wants to continue to live for themselves, this warping of the gospel is very appealing. Lots of people throughout history have made the mistake of failing to serve the Lord. It has a bunch of different forms. Um, the easy believism of sinner's prayer Christianity, for example which is the view that because I have prayed a prayer to become a Christian, I'm, I'm, I'm safe, I'm saved, and God requires nothing else of me for the rest of my life. Um, the man-centered version of faith, the human-centered version of faith uh, that we find so common in the prosperity churches, which teach you that God is a, is, is a vehicle for you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. That, that the life of faith is all about me, and therefore, I can live the life that I want to live and claim Jesus as my excuse to do so. Or the dry, sorry, the dry, stale, lifeless version of Reformed theology, which uses God's sovereignty as an excuse for sinfulness. All of these things have been common throughout history. All of them are different versions of the same mistake, claiming to have God's favor whilst living for myself and not for him. No, we are to avoid this mistake. We are not to be lazy Christians. This part of Romans highlights the fact that under grace, God's plan for your life is for you to be active in serving him. There is nobody here who is an exception to that rule. We are not to be slothful in zeal. How delightfully accurate was it when somebody out there somewhere named the animals known as sloths Sloths. Aren't they well named? What else could they have called them? Can you picture listening to that documentary with, with David Attenbury like, over here we have the wild lazy monkey. 
Like what? There's no better name for a sloth than a sloth. If Christianity is wrong, <laughs> it isn't, but it just bear with me. I'm a bad pastor right now. If Christianity is wrong and reincarnation is a thing, you could do worse than coming back as a sloth. Am I right? That's, that's something of a life that, that has some appeal here. These creatures are like the living parable. Actually, I got, I got the picture. It's on the floor. You can get it up. They're cute. It's worth looking at. Did it work? There should be a picture of a sloth. You can Google it. Yeah. <laughs> These creatures are like a living parable of the meaning of the word sloth. Aren't they? They are slow and lethargic. They spend their days doing nothing other than sleeping and chewing, and then occasionally sleeping. Their hooked feet <laughs> mean that they don't even have to expend any energy on hanging on. They can merely passively dangle. Did you know that the three-toed sloth, <laughs> which is my personal favourite, only climbs down from its tree once a week? Once per week, they make the slow descent from the branches that they live in to the ground in order to go to the toilet for which they have been saving up all week. <laughs> the worst experience in life as a human is having had the opportunity for a sleepy and ruined by the need to go to the toilet. Imagine, once a week, when they go, they've been saving up, they expel something like one-third of their body mass in a single go before making the slow and arduous climb back up to the branches. It's the life, I tell you. Christians, <laughs> we are not to be like this in our faith. We are not to be mere passive danglers on grace. That is not the implication that we should be drawing from a gospel of grace. Grace is a transformational power that puts us to work. We do not work so that we, may, so that we might gain God's favour. We already have that. That's, that's the mistake that we avoid. We don't work like somebody who has something to prove. We work like members of the family who are contributing our part out of love. We work like members of the family. As Christians, we have been adopted into God's family. Look at him. He's just living large. Just like, yes, brother, I feel you. I feel you. <laughs> no, we've been adopted. We are in the family. We are accepted, we are loved, we are included, we have nothing left to prove. That is the implication of grace. And so now, get on with making yourself useful and do the washing up. Right? That's, that's the paradigm of Christianity. To fail to serve the Lord, to, to, to be slothful in our zeal, is laziness. Unless we have a good excuse, such as illness. <laughs> what is the positive alternative to avoiding this mistake? We have it stated in two positive ways as well. To be fervent in the spirit and to serve the Lord. This is what we are to be as a result of grace. To be fervent in spirit. Literally could be translated to be hot, to be on fire in or by the spirit. That's what, that's what the phrase means. To be on fire in or by the spirit and serve the Lord. Instead of apathy, grace gives us 
spiritual fire. Instead of passivity, grace leads us to confident service. These these ideas should describe our ordinary lies under grace. We have a role to play, brothers and sisters, in cultivating both our spiritual temperature and our service to the Lord. You have something to do in order to have these things be fruitful in your life. Let's think of spiritual heat just for a second. You have a role to play in your spiritual temperature. Did you know this? In the book of Revelation, um, the risen Jesus appears to the Apostle Paul on the island of Patmos and has him inscribe John. I said Paul, didn't I? Thank you for shaking your head. That would have gone on the internet forever. The Apostle John on the island of Patmos and has him write a number of letters to, um, to the churches in the region of Asia Minor, I believe it was called at the time. And he tells them uh, a personalised message for each congregation. In Romans, uh, Revelation 3.14, we have Jesus' letter to the church in Laodicea. This is what John was to write. The words of the Amen the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot, cold, nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous And repent. Can you see how much overlap there is? How that message from Jesus cuts. Imagine if we were the church in Laodicea hearing this personalized message to us from the risen Jesus. How heavy those words would land. Jesus tells them, this is is what's shocking about that letter. Jesus tells them that he would prefer that they would be cold than lukewarm. Literally meaning that he would prefer that they would be unbelievers rather than lukewarm believers. Isn't that shocking? Would that you were either cold or hot rather than lukewarm. Lukewarm is the worst option. Lukewarm is the option of the person who claims to be inside the grace of Jesus, claims to have all the benefits of gospel grace, and is living a life far from God. Lukewarm. It's the one temperature of food which you never want to experience, isn't it? Cold meats for breakfast. The Germans got it right. It's delicious. Hot stew, roast. We had a, we had a roast lamb for dinner last night, cooked in the slow cooker. I don't know if roast is the right word. Slow cooked lamb. It's probably more accurate. Delicious. Lukewarm lamb. No, just don't. Microwave, 20 seconds, done. Have a go. Enjoy your salmonella. Lukewarm is the worst of the options. 
Jesus wants people to be who they claim to be. This is what he's saying. I want you to be who you claim to be. Those of you who deny Jesus, he wants you to become hot. Don't, don't miss that. Those of you who have, have yet to submit to him as saviour, he wants to include you in salvation. But he doesn't want you to pretend. He wants you to have the real thing. Those of us who are inside his grace, the Lord Jesus wants us white hot in our love and our reverence for him. The Laodiceans, it turns out, lacked spiritual fervour for a specific reason. They had fallen into a danger that we have every opportunity to fall in in their wake. They lacked spiritual fervour because they had come to rest in their wealth, Jesus tells them. You say that you are rich. You think that you lack nothing. You think that you have everything that you need. And so there is no drive in you to pursue your needs. Jesus says it's just not true. You're actually blind, naked, wretched, pitiable, and poor. Instead of living for your stuff, instead of living in the false security of material wealth, come says Jesus, come and buy from me. Not literally buy. Come and take all the energy that was going into obtaining stuff and obtaining a false security for yourself and put that effort into drawing near to Jesus in whose grace you will find true riches, true wealth that, that moth cannot destroy and thieves cannot steal. Where you will find covering for your nakedness and shame, where you will find forgiveness and redemption, and restoration, and acceptance. Come and, come and obtain from Jesus the miracle that takes your eyes, which view the world falsely, and let Jesus be the salve that cause you to see truly both your state and the state of the world. These are all things that you contribute to with your effort and your energy and your priorities. We are not to be slothful in zeal. Rather, we are to be hot in the spirit. Do you understand? It's a command. Do you lack spiritual heat this morning? Jesus has what you lack. And so pursue him. You need him. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. How wonderful a promise. It's a promise that remains true even now. Part of being a living sacrifice is that you take responsibility for your spiritual temperature and you put the effort into being spiritually healthy. What about what does it mean? What does it mean to serve the Lord? How do you contribute to this? I'll, I'll go quickly here because just a few weeks ago, we did a whole sermon on the body metaphor. And so we've touched on these things recently. I can go a bit faster. Um, here is the reflection question of what it means for me to take the responsibility to serve the Lord. Christian, can you look at your life as a Christian and identify ways in which you now serve the Lord? Is that part of your life? Do you use your gifts to build up the church? In your workplace, do you serve the Lord as his witness and his example of what a transformed life is? Are you known as a Christian? Are you 
And are you active as a minister of the gospel in anybody else's life but your own? As Christians, we are not to be lazy. Grace drives us to serve the Lord and to contribute in the kingdom. Here's the first three. Here's the next three. Let's look at verse 12. Call to perseverance. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. And be constant in prayer. Read it again. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be constant in prayer. See, what these three things all have in common is that they are a call to perseverance. They are all part of a call to live your life with eyes that are looking up. This highlights a second mistake that we can make with grace. Sometimes we conclude that because our life with God begins with a conversion experience. There is a moment of belief where it begins. We can wrongly conclude that all of the emphasis of the Christian life belongs on that moment of decision at the expense of seeing the ongoing nature of what it means to trust the Lord. If the last verse and its commands were about the external working out of grace... These commands are more about maintaining the health of your internal spiritual world. For example, let's take the first one. Rejoice in hope. You gained that hope on the first day. As Christians, we have hope, but we are to continue to pay attention to that hope. The the biblical concept of hope is, is not The uncertain waiting for a thing that may or may not come. That's not what Paul means when he talks about hope. It's not wishful thinking of an uncertain outcome. Sometimes when we talk about hope, that's what we mean. I hope I'll get a remote control car for Christmas. Was my hope every year as a child, which was never fulfilled. Ever. Biblical hope is a concrete certainty that lies in the future. I didn't fall asleep last night wishing that the sun would rise this morning. It's a given. Until the day that Jesus returns, the sun will rise again anew each day. Is it not obvious? So I don't fall asleep wishing for the sun to rise. I fall asleep waiting for the sun to rise. Do you understand the difference? I hope and I pray for the day when my children will believe that they should remain asleep until the sun rises. (laughs) That is biblical hope. Waiting for a future certainty to arrive. It's just a matter of time. It's coming. There is no doubt. As Christians, we have access to some very great certainties that lie in the future. Jesus is coming back to get us. We just sung about it. We will be united with him and know him even as we are known. How's that for a promise? The guy who can number every hair on your head to know as you are known. We will receive 
a heavenly body, which is like his glorious resurrection body, when all the sickness and frailties and imperfections of your present body will have passed away. And we will live with him in that state forever. None of this is uncertain. All of this is more certain than the fact that the sun will rise tomorrow. Because one day the sun won't rise, the world will end. But this kingdom knows no end. We know that we are on the winning side of the battle. And so, Christian, you have hope. You have certainty. (laughs) In politics today, I, I frequently hear an obnoxious phrase. People sometimes talk about being on the right side of history. Have you heard this kind of talk? I want to be on the right side of history. When they say this, they seem to be claiming that they believe that history has a definite arc, a certain direction of progress, and that their pet project, whatever it is, represents the future certainties that we should all be living our lives in light of. Their kingdom, if you will, is definitely going to win, they believe, and so you better be on the right side of history and agree with them when that day comes. They're both wrong and right. History does have a foreordained arc to it. The course of history has been decided by God and God alone. And the resolution of that story is not going to be certain kinds of political progress. It is going to be the arrival of his coming kingdom when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That is the definite sweep of history. And it is good advice to be on the right side of history when that day arrives. We have hope. We have it. It is ours. And in light of that hope, we have a job to do. We are to rejoice. Rejoice. The verb of joy. Did you know that joy is an action in the Christian life? It is a thing we are to do. It is a necessary part of a healthy Christian hope. Yes, Jesus changes so much for us here and now. So much of our present reality is transformed by encountering Christ and his grace. But all of our best promises are things which lie in the future. All of them. And so Christians, lift up your eyes and notice your hope. Give your attention to it on purpose. Train yourself to be able to see it and savor it all of the time. This is part of living for God. What a wonderful invitation. Train yourself to access the hope that he has won for you at any given moment and experience the joy of future certainty. We are to lift our eyes up. Because of gospel grace. The same goes for the other two. I'll go quicker. Be patient in affliction, we are told. Be patient in affliction. I wish that I could promise you a life sans affliction. That sounds delightful to me. That life is coming. (laughs) But if this last month has done anything in the Maloney family at least, it has been to beat the prosperity gospel out of us with a stick. It's been a horrible month with a really lovely celebration sandwiched in the middle just to keep things emotionally confusing. (laughs) 
affliction is part of life in a fallen world. In this world, you will know trouble, promises Jesus. It's one of his promises I'd like to forget. But affliction can be a false horizon. A false horizon. Have you ever climbed a mountain? You don't have to answer me. Some of us have. I have and I intend to never do so again. One of the strange things that happens on the way up a mountain, have you experienced this, is that you can get this optical illusion that starts to happen where you think that the ridgeline that you can see up ahead is the top of the mountain. It's called a false summit. Have you experienced this? And it's not until you get to the false summit that you find out that, no, there's another half a mountain behind this thing. But just because the mountain did this dipsy doodle thing for a bit, I couldn't see the rest of the mountain. And so this, this ridge line just, just above you as you're climbing up, because I can't see anything past it, I come to think that it's the top. Affliction can be like that. Affliction can be like that. It can consume your vision to the point where you can't see anything past your present sufferings. Where you think all that exists is the suffering and the pain of the present moment. But faith calls us to look up. To look past our present afflictions. To know our future hope. And as a result, to be patient whilst we suffer. Knowing that our deliverer is coming. To be patient in faith while you wait out the storm. Christian, a better day is coming. So we wait for it in hope. And we wait for it patiently. Lastly, we are to be constant in prayer. Constant in prayer. <laughs> if so much of the life of faith, if so much of the life of faith is defined by keeping our eyes lifted up, looking to our hope, then of course we will need to be a constantly praying people. One of the effects of prayer is that it is an action which causes us to bring to the surface all of the conflicting desires within us. You can try to do patience in affliction by stoically ignoring your pain and just trying to push through until it goes away. That might work for a time until it doesn't. I like to try that one regularly even though it's never worked before. This time, this time, I am just going to be able to beat this thing without having to worry about it. You can try to do patience in affliction through stoicism. It's a really unhealthy solution. Or you can bring your burdens to God in prayer and receive his encouragements today that he has overcome the world. That he is your hope and your certainty and your rock and your fortress and your redeemer. And that he hears, and that he has come down, and that he is fighting the war on your behalf. A person whose eyes are lifted up prays. A person bogged down in the details of today does not. They are too busy being practical. So there you have it. Six commands 
all of which describe some part of a healthy Christian life. And as we meandered through them, perhaps one of them stood out to you today. Why don't I um, we'll leave that up on the screen here for just a moment. Why don't you take a moment to look at these commands and to ask the Lord if he would encourage you in any specific one of them today so that you might be able to discuss it with somebody before you leave. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you this morning that your word meets every one of our needs. We thank you for the parts of your word which are there primarily to give us understanding. There is comfort and strength for us to be found there. And we thank you for the parts of your word which are here to train us in what to do. Lord, all six of these commands, if obeyed, would be a blessing to us. And so we confess together this morning your wisdom and your kindness to us in drawing our attention to the things that grace should be changing in our world in our lives, and in our hearts. We pray that these two general sets of commands would come to describe both my life and the general tone of this congregation. Lord, would we be active in serving you in faith? And would we be persevering in faith? Jesus, the life that you have won for us is delightful. It is life to the full that you have come to give us. This is the freedom that you have come to set us free into. And so we pray that we would obtain. Lord, would you rescue us all from an inactive life of faith? But rather, would you give us the good gift of living lives which bless others in the way that we have been blessed? which share grace as the recipients of grace should. Give us a life which leaves behind us a legacy, a legacy of faithful service, which has changed, served to help change, to leave blessing in our wake. Lord, give us perseverance. Rescue us from, from short-sightedness as Christians and instead give us an eternal view of our lives today. Give us joy. Give us patience. And lead us to prayer. Thank you that you have met with us today and that by your spirit you have taken your word and made it come to life as it has its full effect in us. Jesus, to you belongs the glory because if it was not for your grace, we could have none of these things. We pray this in